0: Today on Blue Fifty Eight, week one is upon us. That means it's time to stop speculating about who's going to make the final roster and start speculating about how the Packers will do each and every week. Let's get right down to it. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. Before we get to the content today, I did want to make a brief announcement, something that is going to affect you in the in the near future here. We are adding to the broadcast team again. That means in two weeks, give or take, uh, there's going to be a third member of the crew here. We added another co-host a couple weeks back or a couple years back, and uh, we've got another one coming along here. Uh, In plain terms, that means we're having a kid. Um, And as far as that goes for you, that means there's going to be a slight interruption in Blue 58. Uh, I don't think it's going to be any longer than a week or so. Um, but we will be out for at least the recap of the Lions game, potentially a little bit longer, because D-Day, as it stands right now, is September 20th. Um, But realistically, we're in any day now territory, and I've held off as long as I could on making this announcement, didn't want to freak anybody out. Just want to let you know that if there's uh, no episodes of Blue 58 for a couple days, uh, that is why. Um, So we're very excited. Everybody's doing really well, and uh, it's going to be a very exciting time. The plan right now, if everything goes according to plan, and you never really know with these kinds of things. But the plan right now is to uh, do every podcast right up until the preview for week two. Uh, that's five shows from now, I think. But uh, we'll do that. We will um, get you previewed for the Lions game, and then who knows what happens from there. I know for sure if uh, if everything goes according to our plan right now, we'll be at the hospital on the 20th. But... Um, Beyond that, it's going to depend how everybody's doing, and we're going to put, put family first and make sure we get everybody taken care of. Um, but uh, there's going to be a brief interruption, and and hopefully we'll be back in the saddle uh, for the week three preview. But if we're not, that's why. I just wanted to let you know we're very excited again, and again, everybody's doing well. So thank you for your patience with that. Let's talk about predictions for 2021. And more than predictions, I want to talk about expectations. We've made a, a practice of setting expectations for the Packers ever since, well, pretty much ever since, uh, since the power sweep has been around. Why set expectations? You've got to have something to measure against. You can't just predict things that are going to happen. You've got to take a second and decide what you really think is realistic for this team. Expectations give you a framework to work in. My expectations for the Packers are are pretty clear for this year. First, I think the Packers are going to be very good. There's every reason to think this is going to be a very, very solid team. I expect the Packers to advance to at least the divisional round, and I think anything other than that is going to be a failure for this season. I think you could go as far as saying anything less than a Super Bowl is a failure for this season. But we are we're going to get um, get to that in a little bit, and I think the Packers. I think we can realistically expect that they are going to be contenders to go to the Super Bowl. That should be our framework for the Packers this year. We should expect a very good team. They're bringing back virtually every member of what was a very good team last year. Why not expect the same thing this year? I don't think there's any reason to not expect that. In terms of actual predictions, I've got a bunch of them for you here. And I've got a few that are in progress already. We've made a bit more of a practice of tracking every prediction we make. I don't know if we've gotten everyone that we've we've made into the podcast so far, but uh early in the off season, I sat down and did a bunch of predictions about the off season itself and how the twenty twenty one season would turn out. We're doing okay so far uh some of the uh the predictions that we've got right including include that Corey Lindsley would not return to the Packers. Uh, that Aaron Rodgers would ultimately reworked work his contract, which is, I guess, a technically correct because it was reworked in very unexpected way. Uh, we predicted the Packers would select a receiver in the draft this year, among other things. Uh, some that we got wrong: uh, that the Packers would sign at least one noteworthy free agent in the spring. figured that was coming after an Aaron Rodgers contract restructure. Also thought that Devonta Adams would rework his contract at the start of the league year. Um, and that the Packers would release Preston Smith, so that's kind of where we're working at, among other things with uh, with Packer's predictions so far. as far as this year I've got a bunch of them for you here. I just kept adding and adding and adding and uh, well this is the list we've come up with so we're going to start with offense, work through those we'll talk about defense and then we'll talk about predictions for the team overall. first prediction. Aaron Rodgers, I think, is going to throw for more than 35 touchdowns this year. That doesn't sound like a a huge number, but Rodgers has only thrown for 35 or more touchdowns in back-to-back seasons once in his career. This would be just the second time he's done it. Brett Favre did it for three seasons in a row from 1995 through 1997, so this would be a significant accomplishment for Aaron Rodgers uh, following Brett Favre. The second Rodgers-related prediction I've got for you is that Rodgers is going to play every game in 2021. Again, not something that sounds like a big accomplishment for him, but if he does it this year, it's going to be just the second or the first time in his career that he's played every regular season game for four years in a row, the only four-year stretch of his career where he's done that. There were a couple years where he was real close uh, between 2008 and 2012, but in 2010 he missed a game for injury, and in 2011 he sat down for week 17. Twitter user Joe at Work87 did some research on this after I, I tweeted about it, and he says, "Interesting nugget. League history suggests it's about a 50-50 shot a quarterback starts every game." Here's the number of league of quarterbacks who have done it the last couple of years, and he actually researched back to to every season dating back to 2010. There hasn't been more than 20 quarterbacks in a year uh, in that time that have started all 16 games in a season. In fact, most years, it's fewer than 15. The last five seasons, you've got 13 last year, 13 in 2019, 16 in 2018, 12 in 17, and 14 in 16. It's not generally that big of a number. And I would wager a soft guess that most of the team's whose quarterback starts every year or every game are, are the teams that are ending up in the playoffs. But that's just a guess. I have no research to go with that. But um, I'm predicting it's going to be all 16 again for Rodgers, all 17 again for Rodgers. That's something we've got to keep in mind. It's 17 games this year. My third quarterback-related prediction is that Jordan Love is going to play more than 50 snaps this year. That'd be a departure for the Packers. Tim Boyle played 21 in 20 and 22 the last two seasons respectively. I think Love is going to get a little bit more in terms of action near the ends of blowouts this year. He's going to get more than just the uh, cursory kneel-down duty that Boyle got last year. I think there's a good chance that he's going to be playing quite a bit in Week 2, given how that game looks and the state of the Lions and everything. Uh, But, um, yeah, I think Love is going to get a significant amount of snaps this year, and 50 would be a fairly significant amount of snaps for a backup quarterback. Next up, Kurt Benkert is going to end up on the 53-man roster at some point this year. Just have a feeling that they won't go with two all year long, and at some point he's going to get promoted to the the 53-man roster and uh, have an opportunity to at least um, be on the 53 for game day, uh, if not be active for the game. At running back, I think Aaron Jones is going to score double-digit touchdowns again this year. He's had at least nine each of the last three seasons. 18, he had nine. 2019, it exploded to 19. In 2020, he had 11. So I think it's a pretty safe bet that he's going to get to double digits again. We've previously predicted, though, that A.G. Dillon is going to lead the the Packers in rushing yards this year. That's just on my prediction sheet. I don't remember saying that, and I don't remember when I said it, but it's written down, so we're just going to roll with it. Why not? Uh, Let's get a little bit weird. Uh, also, going to predict at, at running back that Patrick Taylor ends up on the 53 man roster at some point and gets a carry in the game, in a game. So that's a two for four, yeah. Just with the way that running backs turn over and with what they seem to think of Taylor bringing him back on the practice squad, despite not really getting an extended look at him for the past two years due to injury. They seem to like him a lot. He's a big body. He's a, a good athlete, and um, I think they're going to try to get him on the roster at some point this year. And With how running back goes, there's a good chance there's going to be an injury at some point anyway, so they could need him around. At receiver, I'm going to predict that Devontae Adams will lead the league in receiving touchdowns. I think the Packers, again, are going to go with their passing-heavy approach down close to the goal line, and that is something that is going to lend itself to to Adams Getting a lot of touchdowns again. Uh, he's not going to be the Packers' big play threat as much this year, though, because I'm going to predict that uh, Marquez Valdez will, Scantling will lead the Packers in explosive plays. This is something we'll talk a bit about a little bit probably next week. I haven't had a time to talk about the, the stats that we track at the power sweep, uh, but that's one of them. Uh, explosive plays, I think, are a good measure of how, well, explosive. Uh, and how how good an offense is at at creating big chunk plays, uh, MVS is going to lead the Packers in explosive plays this year. He would be approximately doubling his output from last year to put him in the ballpark to, to lead the Packers this year. But uh, I think he can do it, and I would consider this one of my bolder predictions. Uh, I'm looking for big things from MVS this year. On the offensive line, I think nine different offensive linemen will start a game for the Packers this year. This sounds a little crazy, but stick with me here. With with five starting in week one, we're already up to five. So that's that's just four to go. Bakhtiari is going to make it six. I think Dennis Kelly gets in there for a game, getting us to seven. Uh, they'll switch somebody around at guard. So Lucas Patrick is going to start this year. Oh, That was a, a news nugget that came out yesterday. It looks like Lucas Patrick is the starter at left guard and not John Runyon Jr., as I had assumed. Uh, so Patrick will be one of the starters. But I think they'll flip-flop at some point. And get another another guard in there, and bump him up to uh, bump their total up to eight. So who's going to be number nine? We don't know, uh, but I think they're going to to get to nine this year. That could be a little bit of a stretch. They might stop at eight, but um, you never know. And I think the Packers have done well at maintaining consistent offensive line play, no matter who is in the starting lineup. Switching over to defense, I'm going to predict that Zadaria Smith does not get to double digit sacks this year. I think with his apparent back injury, he's going to be slowed a little bit. I think he is still going to be a very effective player, but I don't think he gets to double-digit sacks. I do, however, think Rashawn Gary will get to that platform, at least 10 sacks for him this year. Preston Smith, to round out the top three edge rushers, is going to have more than five sacks, but fewer than 10. Sticking at linebacker, but moving to the inside group, Devondre Campbell is going to lead the Packers in tackles. Uh, He stays healthy wherever he goes, and he'll be healthy all year. And they're, they're top linebacker, so he's going to pile up tackles pretty much just because. This is not that outrageous of a prediction. I do think that every other inside linebacker that's healthy for the whole season will start at least one game for the Packers. That gives you Chris Barnes, Oren Burks, Isaiah McDuffie, and Ty Summers all making appearances in the starting lineup this year. Might get a little bit iffy there down the stretch toward the the bottom group there. But I think with how they, they sprinkle guys in... Um, you, you will see a couple of those guys make cameos um, in the in the inside linebacker group. And with injuries, who knows? And uh, I think the farther down the list the go, that, the tougher that gets, but I don't think it's that unrealistic either. In the back end of the defense, I think Jair Alexander is finally going to go for the twofer and make a Pro Bowl and All-Pro this year. Uh, the Jair Alexander breakout season is here. He's finally going to get some league-wide attention and I think it's going to result in him getting some postseason recognitions that he richly deserves. Eric Stokes, the rookie corner, is going to be the full-time starter for the Packers by Week 6. This is kind of uh, something we've touched on a few times already. If he's not, what are we doing here? You can't honestly tell me that Kevin King is going to be a better option all season long than Eric Stokes, and really it's a better idea to get Stokes into the, into the lineup sooner and play, playing regularly with high-level reps uh, than later, so get him out there, see what he see what he can do. At least sink or swim with a guy who has a a brighter long-term future than Kevin King. At safety, I think Adrian Amos is going to make his first Pro Bowl this year. He's been too good for too long. It's time to, um, for him to get some recognition, and I think it's going to happen this year. At punter, Corey Bohorquez is not going to beat J.K. Scott's punting average from last year, and that is going to be okay. Scott averaged 45.5 yards per punt this year, or last year. I think Bohorquez is not going to manage that, but I think he is going to be more consistent and do a little bit better on hang time. Uh, Just be a more consistent punter than Scott was, and that'll help the Packers' special teams overall. Mason Crosby is going to make more than 90% of his kicks for the third year in a row. Uh, Matt LaFleur has been really strategic about when he uses uh, Mason Crosby, and I think that's going to result in another great season for the Packers kicker. Now, team overall, four predictions for you here, and then one kind of thing to to kind of cap it all off. That's less a prediction and more just, I think, an observation about where the team is. First, I think the Packers are going to win at least 12 games this year. Over-under, I think it was 10.5. If I was a gambling man, I think I'd bet on that pretty confidently, bet the over pretty confidently on that. 12 and 5 seems really, really doable here. This is a pretty risk-averse prediction for the Packers, but you never know, and 12 seems um, like a a fair sum for them. Um, That's the floor. The ceiling could be much higher than that, but uh, 12, that's where we're starting. At least 12 wins for the Packers this year. I think the Packers are going to be worse overall on offense by DVOA. So that's a DVOA, that's the Football Outsiders' efficiency number. The Packers are about as good as you can get last year. Uh, first overall, first in passing, and fifth in rushing. I think they're just going to step back slightly on offense just because it's hard to be that efficient again this year. That's not going to mean necessarily that they're, they're worse or, or that their offense is bad by any stretch of the imagination. They're just going to look a little bit different as a team this year. On defense, I think they'll be better overall by DVOA. They were 17th overall last year, 15th against the pass and 18th against the run. That is, I guess, to repeat a phrase that we've, we've used about Mike Pettin's defense in the past, just a, uh, a team that seems like the le- the su- that seems less than the sum of its parts. Got there eventually. There we go. That was my knock on Pettin for years. He just produced defenses that were not as good as the talent that they had. Joe Barry, at least in year one, I think he's going to be able to do slightly better than that. I'm still not super confident about Joe Barry, but the Packers have undeniable talent at defense. Jair Alexander, Zedaria Smith, Kenny Clark, Rashawn Gary, Adrian Amos, Darnell Savage Jr. I mean, there are good pieces at every level of the defense here. They should be better than 17th by DVOA. Finally, on special teams, they'll be better than they were last year, again, by DVOA. 25th, all right, not all that much better. It doesn't take a whole lot to be better than 25th in the league, but I think they will be better this year. I think Maurice Drayton is going to at least get things a little bit more buttoned up on special teams. And if he can do that, they should improve basically automatically. Finally, in terms of what the Packers will actually do this year, I'm going to stick with the same prediction from last year. The Packers will advance to at least the divisional round in the playoffs by a win or buy. But beyond that, it gets to be kind of a crapshoot. Once you get to that round of the playoffs, anything can happen. It's going to be matchups. It's going to be, um, but it's going to be matchups. It's just going to be who you're playing and when and, and how those teams are playing at the time that you play them. I mean, just look how last year's playoffs could have played out. The Washington football team gave the Buccaneers a pretty, pretty tough go in, in the first round of the playoffs. But say they knock off Tampa. How does that affect the Packers' run to the Super Bowl last year? They end up playing the Saints or Washington, probably, in the NFC Championship game at home. I don't know about you, but I feel pretty confident about the outcome there. There's a non-zero chance that uh, the Bills end up beating the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. And one of the ways that you attack Josh Allen is with multiple safety looks. So there was a a pretty realistic scenario last year where the Packers end up playing the Buffalo Bills and getting a chance to play basically Mike Pettin's preferred defense against a quarterback who's known to give up a few turnovers now and then in the Super Bowl. It was that close. And it all comes down to matchups. A couple things break slightly differently, and the Packers are are in the Super Bowl and, and potentially winning. Heck, Even if uh, a couple of things break slightly differently in the NFC Championship game, the Packers are in the Super Bowl and winning. But when it gets to that stage, it just gets to be so high leverage, and predicting beyond beyond that round, I think gets really, really tough. So I'm going to predict they advance at least to the divisional round by a win or or a bye, and then we'll see what happens from there. But let me make something absolutely clear as we as we wrap up prediction time here. We started off. Talk about expectation, then this is not so much an expectation and it's not a prediction, but it's something that I've believed since early in the offseason. This Packers season is Super Bowl or bust. Whether or not this is the last dance or anything like that for Aaron Rodgers and a lot of these core players in the Packers, they've gone as close to all in as they, that I think I've ever seen the Packers go in my lifetime, following the team, covering the team, whatever. This is an all-in Packers team. And if they don't win the Super Bowl, it's a failure of a season. Is that an expectation? I don't really know. I think it's, it's more just a reality of what this team is. They have to win the Super Bowl. This is, that is the stakes here. And if they don't, there's a good chance this is all going to get blown up and we'll have a very good, a very different-looking Packers team in 2022. To be fair, there's also a chance that if, if they go far enough and a few of the principals involved feel good enough about how things are going, they don't blow it all up, and we're right back here in 2022 talking about how the Packers are Super Bowl contenders with Aaron Rodgers again, but hey, that's a, that's a concern for another day. For right now, we got to talk about this season, and this season the stakes, I think, could not be higher. As we come to the end of training camp, preseason, things like that, we're also coming to the end of our book club. We've spent the last couple months reading through Blood, Sweat, and Chalk by Tim Layden, and this chapter, our final chapter, brings us to the All-11 offense, the A11 offense. This was wildly popular for just a little bit when I was in college. And overall impressions of this chapter, I think this is a great one to end on, Because this quote from the coach, and I don't have his name in front of me, who conceived of this wacky and weird offense, kind of sums up this book so well. He had gotten beaten up. His team had gotten beaten up, metaphorically, by a team that was bigger and stronger than them. So they had to come up with this wacky offensive scheme just to stay level. Why did they do that, though? Here's what he said. We'd spent a lot of time working that game out on paper. We had stuff that should have worked if we executed, but when it came time to play the game we just couldn't do it. We weren't big enough or strong enough. That was very frustrating to me, and I felt bad for our players, end quote. To me, that's the essence of coaching, and it boils down so much of what came about in this book. Sure, you can just go out and get good players. You know, we've talked about players not plays ad nauseum throughout this, this book discussion. It's, having the best players is is in is the number one way to win football games. But what if you don't have the best players? What if you don't have the guys that are the biggest, the strongest, or the fastest? As a coach, you've got to figure out what you can do and then do that. As far as this actual offense goes, there's really not a lot of reason to dive into it because it's been essentially outlawed in high school football and the rules that allow it are not, are not even possible or are not in play at the college and NFL level some people said this offense was cheating though and as far as a reflection on that i would say with a small asterisk here if you aren't cheating you aren't trying if you aren't trying to push the boundaries of what what is possible what are you even doing as a coach why aren't you trying to get every advantage possible does that violate the spirit of the rules i don't know but the rules are there to be exploited by everybody who can. And you should try to exploit every advantage you can find in their rule book. And if it's a bad rule, that's not your problem. The best fix for a bad rule is a bad rule strictly enforced. It's going to get fixed in a hurry if you take advantage of bad rules in the rule book. And that seems to be exactly what happened here. Essentially, this offense boils down to just coming out and pretending like you're going to punt on every single play with the understanding that you're never going to punt. You're just going to keep running the wackiest offensive plays that anybody's ever seen. I can't really communicate to you what this offense is. Just look it up. It is absolute insanity. But it is a good summation of the essence of coaching and really the evolution of football. Normally, we conclude our our discussion of these chapters by talking about some Packers connections. There are obviously not any about this in this book. So instead, I want to ask a bigger question as we come to the end of Blood, Sweat, and Chalk. What would we change if we could change stuff about football? Because here's the thing about football at every level. It doesn't have to be the way that it is. For evidence of that, just look at, well, the entire history of football. Leyden sums it up in the second-to-last paragraph of the book. Quote, Football is forever in a state of dynamic tension, staunchly resisting change while desperately demanding it. Every innovation in the history of the game carried risk, challenged norms, and put the creators' jobs at stakes. Daryl Royal and Emery Bellard wouldn't have, would have been laughed out of Austin if their funky wishbone hadn't worked, but it did. Bill Walsh would never have become the revered coach of the champion 49ers if his weird offense hadn't panned out in Cincinnati, but it did, end quote. So what would we change? What should we change about football? My number one complaint for a long time is that football has not been fun enough at the NFL level, and one way I think to increase the fun is to do something silly like changing jersey numbers, changing those rules, making it so anybody can wear pretty much whatever they want. And it has achieved my desired effect to an extreme degree already because Tom Brady is complaining about it. And if I can make Tom Brady complain about something, I have won in in an enormous way. Makes it tougher to read the defense. Give me a break. You've been playing football for a thousand years, Tom Brady. Look where guys are standing. Make your reads based on that. It's not that hard. More to the point, though, in terms of actual things I would change, I would make personnel movement between the teams easier. That's not so much a, a schematic change in football, but I would make it easier for guys to move between teams and specifically trades. I think it would be great if the NFL worked out some kind of trade exemption where it would be possible for the cap hits to be a little bit different in terms of a guy moving from a team that isn't to a contender to one that is. We should be encouraging the best teams to go out and get the best players as they're trying to make Super Bowl runs. There's got to be a way to figure something like that out. And maybe it's as simple as carving out some kind of salary cap exemption for teams trading for guys on expiring contracts or getting a one-time exemption on the salary cap for a guy that you're bringing in. For one year, and then you've got to fit them under your cap for next year. You're still moving resources from one team to another. One team is just willing to give up something like a draft pick or a player or something like that for for a different player. We should encourage things like that in the NFL uh, because that is good for the sport. It's good for fans, and it's good for players who want to play on good teams. Finally, and shout out to our man Queso in the Discord server for this one. We got to make kicking feel like it matters again, kicking is a big part of football. And I think they've either either got to outlaw it outright, get rid of it entirely, which I'm not in favor of, or make it feel important. Because right now field goals feel absolutely automatic within a certain distance, 35, 40 yards or so. What's the actual conversion rate on those kicks? It's got to be well in excess of 90%. And punting far too often seems like you're giving up. So what are the stakes there? Why, why should anybody kick? Why can? Or how can we make kicking feel like it's not just wasting it down, wasting your time as you're watching it at home? One thing I've always advocated for is getting rid of kicking specialists. So a great way to make kicking feel like it matters is to make guys kick who are not specifically kickers. I would say that if you're going to punt or if you're going to kick, the rule should be, that it has to be performed by a guy who was on the field for the previous play. So just for instance, say it's 3rd and 8 on your opponent's, what, 29-yard line. Just on the edges of comfortable field goal range. You're inside 50 yards, but uh, not, quite, not quite to super comfortable field goal range. Tough, but, but not super difficult. So, third and eight from your opponent's 29. You run a little off tackle play or a quick slant or something, you get four yards. You're down to the 25. Again, comfortable field goal range, but you're on the the outer edges of the distance. But you can't bring in Mason Crosby. You can't bring in a guy who has only ever kicked the ball in the NFL. You've got to line up with one of the guys who is on the field for the previous play. Who is it? It could be anybody. It could be your receiver. It could be your, you know, one of your guards, like they did back in the day when Jerry Kramer's kicking field goals for for the Packers. That's going to change your calculus on whether or not you go for a field goal. And those field goals are going to feel like they matter a whole lot more. And it could encourage teams to go for it on fourth down more, which is always a good thing. Same thing for punting it's going to change the calculus on when punting becomes a good idea. Right now, I think teams are still punting too often on the plus side of the 50-yard line. So when you're in opponent's territory, you should be looking to go for it pretty much as often as you can. And making it so somebody who isn't a punter has to punt is going to change the calculus on when punting becomes a good idea. Because if you can't count on a punter just skying some enormous punt that's going to hang in the air forever and drop like a wedge shot inside the five-yard line and just sit there, it's going to change how you approach that punt. And it's going to make it all the more valuable if you've got a guy who's on the field who can do something like that. I think that makes the game a lot more interesting. And people will say things like, well, it's been this way for a long time. We've got all these kicking specialists and stuff like that. But my point is, it doesn't have to be that way. It wasn't always that way. And freeing up two more roster spots by doing it this way makes your roster all that much more interesting. Plus, if you do it this way, you don't have to spend a whole bunch of roster spots on guys that are only special teamers. That's another win. You get more of the interesting players on your roster top to bottom. That's my big change. That is my contribution to blood, sweat, and chalk. What's yours? What do you think football should change? I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. That's all I've got for you on this episode. I appreciate you listening in. Next time we're together, well, two times from now when we're together because there's something special coming into your feed tomorrow. Uh, But two times from now, when we're back for a standard episode of Blue 58, we'll be previewing week one. You've made it. The off-season, the preseason, is officially over. It's going to start looking really real here in just a little bit. I appreciate you listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with somebody. That's the number one way this show grows, and it's the number one way you can help us out. Getting more people to listen to the show is going to increase uh, the people involved in this conversation you and I and everybody else are having about the Green Bay Packers, and it's going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.